Good morning. The scripture reading this morning will come from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians, the second chapters, verses 1 through 4. And I read, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with the excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not enticing words of man's wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of the power. May God bless the hearers and the doers of his word. The people of God need to believe, you need to believe, that what really changes people's lives is Christ and his cross. If we don't believe that, if that's not at the core and the heart of our conviction, that the cross and the preaching of the cross is what transforms and changes people's lives, then we need to just give up trying to worship God and assembling together. It is the crucifixion of Jesus. It is the fact that he died for you that changes lives. And as God's people, we need to be ever dedicated to the preaching and the conviction that the preaching of the cross is what the world needs more than anything else. Allow me to share some scriptures with you that sustain what I'm arguing here. The passage we just read, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, when I came to you, he's reminding people that he's worked with, when I came to you, the way I spoke, it wasn't lofty speech. The testimony of God was about Christ and him crucified. As a matter of fact, he puts it that way, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I have some questions when I read that passage. Paul, are you saying that every sermon you ever preached was about the cross? That all you ever did was preach sermons about how Jesus suffered and how he was beaten and scourged and mocked and how he was cruelly hung on that cross even though he had done no wrong? That's all you ever talked about? Well, we know that's not true because we find even in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul talking about other subjects. He talks about the end of time, for example. He talks about church discipline in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When he preaches in the book of Acts, he talks about the nature and the attributes of God, for example, in Acts 17. He talks about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come in Acts 24 verse 25. But what he means by that expression and what we need to understand is that all of his preaching centered around the idea that without Jesus Christ and without the cross, people are lost. And if we don't turn to Jesus and look to him and look to the gift that he provides at the cross, whatever else we do with our lives 
will be irrelevant and meaningless. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Every sermon Paul ever preached was redemptive in nature. If you're taking notes, write that down. Redemptive in nature. That's important. Christianity is not just a system of ethics and morals where we learn to do good and not to do evil. Christianity is a redemptive system. That is, we are lost and in our sin and we are helpless and hopeless until and unless we come to Christ and accept what he did for us at the cross. We must be redeemed. It changes people's lives when we allow Jesus to redeem us. Other passages along these lines, Acts 3, verses 14 and 15, early Christians, listen to what they preached. Listen to how they argued with their audience, with their culture. They say to their audience, you denied the Holy One and the Righteous One. They say, you asked for a murderer. You remember Barabbas? You asked for him to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. The early church, brothers and sisters, preached the cross. They preached Christ and him crucified. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness. It's folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross changes lives. Why do people give up the sinful lifestyles they're living? Why do people turn to Jesus and become his disciples? It's because they hear and understand and internalize, that's important, the message of the cross. Have you internalized that message? Have you internalized the idea that Jesus died for you? That even if the world was full of righteous people, if you were the only sinner that Jesus would have still gone to the cross and done what he, what he suffered on your behalf. It's the power of God. It changes lives. In a couple of verses later, in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 through 24, Paul argues that the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's the message of Christians. We preach Christ and him crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews because Jews knew that kings don't die on crosses. Kings rule. Kings have authority. Kings have wealth. They don't die on crosses. It was a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, it was foolishness. We're going to live forever. There's something after death. That's foolishness. Why would dying on a cross have anything to do with me? But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, the Bible says. Early Christians focused, were cross-centered, were Christ-magnifying in all of their preaching and all of their teaching. As they talked to their friends and their neighbors, as they talked to people in the marketplace, they preached the message of the cross. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul says, when I came to you, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul, tell me what your message is. Boil everything down. Tell me what you're all about. Tell me what you're trying to convince people of. I'm trying to convince people that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised, and that ought to change your life. The implications of that fact that Jesus died for you ought to change the way you live. 
because that message is powerful. That message will change people. And brothers and sisters and friends, in 2,000 years, that fact, that reality has not changed. The message of the cross changed people's lives in the first century. People gave up all kinds of lifestyles and all kinds of wickedness and all kinds of cultural things that they had been involved in that were sinful and wicked and wrong. They gave those things up, gave it all up to follow Jesus Christ. They even gave their own lives. Why? Because they had internalized the message that Jesus died for me. And the same message will change people's lives today. It's the same power from the same God that will transform people today. Are we as a congregation, are you as an individual, Christ-centered, and are we magnifying what Jesus did at the cross? Whatever Bible classes we offer, whatever sermons are preached, is the cross and the redemption that we find in Christ, is that ultimately the target of those classes and sermons? Is our preaching and our teaching redemptive? If so, then a couple of things are gonna be the result. If we're preaching Christ and him crucified, that preaching will be powerful. When people understand what Jesus has done and how it applies to our lives, that's powerful preaching and it leads to powerful results. People still, even today, respond to the message of the cross. One thing that may be true of our society is our society has assumed that they've heard the message of the cross. Yeah, heard it. Heard the story about Jesus on the cross. You Christians choose to believe that, that's fine. I've heard other people talk about it. It's not for me. But when we talk genuinely on a personal level about what Jesus has done, if people listen and hear and respond, there are powerful results even today. Lives are still being changed by that message. And this is a solid anchor, brothers and sisters and friends. We talk a lot about our young people as they grow up and we want them to be faithful to the Lord when they grow up. We want them to serve Jesus Christ and to follow him and to be his disciples. I believe with all my heart that the Bible teaches that the message of the cross is God's power, not only to save people initially, it is God's power to keep people saved. If we could do anything with all of our young people, with all of our members, if we could do anything, we ought to emphasize what Jesus has done and how that ought to impact everything else about our lives. It'll impact the way we see scripture. It'll impact what we believe is a priority for our lives, what we choose for a career. The fact that Jesus died for me and I need to be redeemed and I need to be saved, that will change everything about my life. It becomes a solid anchor for all of us congregations that preach Christ and him crucified, they hear powerful preaching. They experience powerful results and they know the solid anchor that comes. Jesus keep me near the cross. The song we sang just a moment ago, truer words and better words could never be sung. What happens What happens when we preach Christ and him crucified? What happens when the message of the cross and the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, the fact that we're saying that the thing that people need more than anything else is Jesus and his cross, when we say that and we repeat that and we drill that into people's heads, when that's true, what is the result of that kind of preaching? 
there are five observations I'd like for us to make this morning when we think about the results. What will happen when Christ and him crucified is preached? Five results. Number one, when we preach Christ and him crucified, sin is revealed. Sin is revealed. Most people, if we use the word sin, they kind of recoil and initially and especially kind of instinctively we say, well, that's not me. You know, other people are sinners, other people are wicked, but I'm thinking about my own life and there's not a lot in my life that I would really call sin. I mean, okay, there's some things I need to correct, but when we preach Christ and him crucified, it becomes much more serious and much more personal. Watch this. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Isaiah 53 and just look with me for a moment. Isaiah chapter 53, verses four through six. When we preach Christ and him crucified, sin is revealed. People are brought face to face with the reality and the terrible nature of what they have done before God. Isaiah 53 verses four through six is a prophecy about the cross. And I want you to listen to the personal pronouns, the we and the our types of pronouns in this passage. Listen to what it says about Jesus and about us. It says in verse four of Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. What it's saying is that Jesus died vicariously in the place of you and me. For your transgressions and mine, for your sins and mine, Jesus died because we have offended God. Because we have sinned against God. That's why he went to the cross. In 1 Peter 2.24, it says, he bore in his body our sins upon the tree. Quoting from Isaiah chapter 53, 1 Peter is. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, the scripture says, in his body, he purged us of our sins. When Jesus came to earth, brothers and sisters and friends, he came to earth for one reason and one reason only, because you sinned against God. He came to earth to save you from your sin. And when we preach Christ and him crucified, it ought to convict us personally. I have sinned against God. I have offended him. And he had to come and to repair that breach. He had to come and I see my sin and I think about what I've done. Sin is revealed when we preach Christ and him crucified. We were not redeemed, Peter says, with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. In Revelation 1, verse 5, the Bible says that Jesus loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood because there's only one agent that can wash away sin. There's only one material that can take away sin in the mind of God. It's the blood of Jesus, his son. Revelation 1 verse 5, sin is revealed. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 2 and look at verse 23. Listen to what was preached on the day of Pentecost. Christ and him crucified, that was what they preached. But in Acts chapter 2 verse 23, the apostle Peter, as he is by inspiration, talking about Jesus and his work. In Acts 2 verse 23, listen to his words. Him, Jesus, was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. This was always God's plan. 
And then he looks at his audience and he says, you have taken him with lawless hands and have crucified him and have put him to death. That's not exactly the way that you win friends and influence people. Think about it. Peter doesn't know his audience personally, most of them. And he stands up and begins his sermon with, you're a bunch of murderers. You took the son of God and you nailed him to a cross and you murdered him. That's how he began his sermon. What's Peter doing? He's revealing their sin. And did you know that every time you sin and every time I sin, we reaffirm the reason why Jesus came to this world. He came to this world because he loves us and because we need a savior, we must be redeemed. Sin makes a mess of everything. Sin will make your life complicated and sin will make your life so that it's kind of like telling telling a lie. You tell a lie to somebody important about something important and all of a sudden, The truth is real there. And all of a sudden you have to tell more lies to cover up that first lie and more lies and more lies. And everything gets complicated and everything gets out of whack in life. The only way to make sense of life and the only way to have any kind of peace and any kind of redemption is to turn and look to Jesus. Our sin is revealed by the cross. When we look at the cross, brothers and sisters and friends, we ought to put away all of our rationalizations and all of our excuses and all of our reasons why I've got to do this and I've got to behave this way, put all of those things away and look to Jesus because he's the only answer. He's the only way your sin can ever be removed. What happens when we preach Christ and him crucified? Not only is sin revealed, but hearts are convicted. You're still open in Acts chapter two? Look at the, look at the verses in verses 36 and 37 especially. Acts two, beginning in verse 36 Hearts are convicted. That is, people realize and understand deep down in their soul, I have offended God. I have wounded Jesus Christ. I am the reason why he came and went to that cross for me. In verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, your murderers, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? These people had internalized the crucifixion of Jesus now. They're the ones that literally did it. They're the ones that cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And now about seven weeks later, they're hearing the the message again, but they're hearing it in a different way. They're hearing, you're the reason why. And they were cut to the heart. Men and brethren, what shall we do? People today need to know, you need to know, I need to know that the reason why Jesus died is because of me, because of you. Titus chapter one, verse nine, elders are commanded by God to be able to take the word of God and to convince and to convict those who speak against God's holy word. The word of God, the message of the cross, it convicts people of their sin. It convicts people that there's something wrong with their lives and it needs to be changed. They must look to Jesus. They must turn to him. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
The poor in spirit are the people who are convicted that they are in sin, that they are lost without the Lord. They're people who know that without the redemption that's found at the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no hope. I'm gonna step off into eternity and I have no future to look forward to without the cross. And before God, I'm guilty. And before God, I'm full of iniquity. That's being poor in spirit, Matthew 5, verse 3. Hearts are convicted of those things when we preach Christ and him crucified. You remember the tax collector, the publican in Luke 18, verse 13, who wouldn't even so much as raise his eyes to heaven. He just smote his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. When people hear about the cross of Jesus Christ, the response that is produced is, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You were created by God in his image. It was never his intention for you to to sin, to turn away from him. It was never his intention for you to walk away from his word and his laws, but you've done so. And now something must be done. When we preach Christ and him crucified, not only are hearts convicted, but forgiveness is extended. Forgiveness is extended. It's amazing that in Acts chapter two, verse 38, God did not say to those people on the day of Pentecost, well, you've made your bed, now lie in it. You murdered my son, you killed the only begotten. You killed the only perfect man who's ever lived. You nailed him to a cross. You're gonna have to deal with the consequences. You're gonna have to live with this. There's no hope for you, but just know that this is what you did to my son. That's not what God did. Rather, what God did is he responded with forgiveness. And he started teaching things like this. In Hebrews 9, verse 22, without the blood, there is no remission of sin. So instead of saying to you and me, you've made your bed, now lie in it. You're lost, you're you're in sin, you have no future, you're gonna be apart from me for all eternity. Instead of saying those things, God started saying, this had to happen. My son had to die because where there is sin, there must be a death to pay the price for that sin. God had started teaching that 1,400 years earlier in Leviticus 17, verse 11, where God said things like this, atonement is made by blood. Through blood atonement, sins are forgiven. And people for 1,400 years were bringing sheep and cattle to God, and they were sacrificing those sheep and those cattle and those goats, and they were saying, God, please, I'm shedding this animal's blood, forgive me of my sin. And Hebrews 10 verse 4 reminds us that without, that, that, that the, the blood of bulls and goats could never fully take away sin. So why do that for 1,400 years? Because God is teaching the principle. Where there is sin, a death must occur for forgiveness to be extended. A death must occur, blood must be shed in order for that sin to be atoned. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 3 and look at verses 25 and 26. Romans 3, verses 25 and 26, and listen to the writer and what he says God did when he sent Jesus to die for us. In Romans 3, verse 25, the Bible says, 
that Jesus Christ was set forth by God as a, here's a word, propitiation by his blood. What that means in Romans 3.25 is that God is angry in his holiness, in his wrath. He is angry because of sin. He must punish sin. He is holy and pure and righteous and he has to do something with sin. He can't just ignore it. He can't just say like you and I want to do, what's no big deal. God can't say that. God has to do something about sin. And this passage, Romans 3.25, is telling you that God willingly set Jesus forth as a propitiation. That means one who satisfies his divine wrath. We've used this illustration in the past. Husbands, if you say something and make your wife upset, oftentimes what a husband will do is, you know, you got to go through all these mental things. Why is she upset, number one? Because most of the time we don't know. Number two, How can I make things right? How can I get her where she's not upset anymore? I don't want her to be mad. I don't want her to be upset anymore. And you think about that and what can I do to make this up? What's wrong? Propitiation is what you're seeking there. How can I get someone who is angry with me to stop being angry with me? How can I satisfy their wrath because I've hurt them, I've offended them, I've wounded them? How can I get them to overlook that and, and act like, This never was a problem in the first place. And God in his holiness says, the blood of my son is what allows that to happen for you. He set him forth as a propitiation. He he satisfied God's divine wrath so that God does not have to be angry toward us anymore. He can look at us with favor, even though we are sinners. It demonstrates his righteousness. And notice in verse 26, At the present time, his righteousness is demonstrated so that he could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. God wants to forgive you. He wants to forgive you so badly that he paid the ultimate price. He sent his own son to die for you so that you could be saved, so that you could be forgiven. And listen to me very carefully. Your forgiveness exists in the mind of God. Write that down if you're taking notes. My forgiveness exists in the mind of God. There is a location to forgiveness. You are not forgiven just because you decide you're forgiven. I'm not forgiven just because I decide, you know what? I think me and God are okay. I think I've made peace with God. Just because you decide that's true doesn't make it true. It's what God thinks that matters. And God is saying, the only way I can forgive you is by looking at what my son did at the cross and by you accepting the benefits of that. And if you'll do that, if you'll accept the benefits of forgiveness that I offer, I will forgive you in my mind on the basis of Christ and his finished work at the cross. That's how forgiveness takes place. It's what God says about my forgiveness that matters, not what I think about my forgiveness. And God makes promises like this. He says, when I forgive you, it's gonna be like taking your sin and removing it as far as the east is from the west. Can't even quantify it. How far is our sin removed as far as the east from the west? Acts 3.19, repent and therefore your sins will be blotted out. It's like your sins are erased and they were never there to begin with. Even though you know you've sinned, And God knows you've sinned, 
it's like they were never there in God's mind. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, your sins and your iniquities, God says, he will remember no more. Why? Because God sent Jesus to die for us. And because the cross of Christ provides atonement and redemption and forgiveness. It's the only way that could ever happen. What happens when we preach Christ and him crucified? Number four, love is produced. Why do people love God? You know, you think about it. We could all decide, well, God has blessed us. He's given us food and sunshine and rain, and he's given us material things that we can enjoy. And and all those things are true. But when the Bible talks about love and God's love specifically, the Bible continually has like a, a giant arrow pointing to the cross. 1 John 4, 8, one of the better known passages about God anywhere in the Bible. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. He who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's 1 John 4, 8. But have you ever gone on and read verses 9 and 10? You know what it goes on to say? In 1 John 4, verse 9, it says, by this, the love of God is manifested. This is how he shows you that he loves you. In that he sent his son, his only begotten son, to die for us. If you're married, how do you say I love you to your spouse? There are a lot of ways, there are a lot of things you could do to be kind, to show compassion, to show thoughtfulness. There are a lot of things you could do to demonstrate for your spouse that you love them. How do you show parents, your kids, that you love them when their birthday comes around? You, you give them a present and you have a party for them and you show them, we care about you, we value you. How does God show us that he loves us? The Bible continually says, by sending Jesus to die for us and to be a propitiation for us, 1 John 4 verse 10. Open your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And I want you to look as we think about Jesus and the cross, as we think about the fact that he died for me. He died for you. John 14, 15, there's a challenge. If you love me, Jesus says, do what? Keep my commandments. You see it? He doesn't stop there. John 14, verse 21, he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father. Look at verse 23 of John 14. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. When we realize and understand that Jesus died for us, love is produced. I love God because he first loved me. I love God because he took the first step in my redemption. He sent his son to die. I love him for those reasons. How do you show somebody that you love them? God says, I've shown you, I love you by sending my son to die for you. Here's how you can show me that you love me. Keep my commandments, obey my word. Do what I've said. Think about it. Mark 16, 16 says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who believes not will be condemned. Two men. One man says, I believe and I'll be baptized. Another man says, I love Jesus, but I'm not ready to be baptized yet. Not yet. 
I love Jesus and I know I need forgiveness and I need redemption, but I'm not going to do that. Which one really genuinely loves the Lord? Which of the two? The one who obeys. Your obedience is how you manifest, how you show God that you love him. And it'll show itself in three areas of our lives. Our love for God shows in how we give. The way that we give, not just when we have the collection at the church building, but the way that we give of our time and our energy, and yes, our financial resources as well and sharing with others, our love for God is manifested that way. It's also manifested in how we gather. In our COVID age, where all of, a lot of people are, are concerned about their health and concerned about, about a lot of things, legitimately so, our love for God is still manifested in how and when and why we gather together. Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25, we are to consider one another and stir one another up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. My love for God is manifested by how and where and why I gather with the people of God. It's also my love, it's also manifested by how we gain. And what I mean by that is, is the message of the cross so important to you that you're willing to talk about it to others? Is the message of the cross, the fact that Jesus died for you and that you've been redeemed, is that so important to you that you care about others enough to tell them? Proverbs 11, verse 30, he who wins souls is wise. Go preach the gospel to every creature, Mark 16, verse 15. When we understand that Jesus died for us, love is produced. Oh, how I love Jesus. And when we preach Christ and him crucified, number five, conditions are clarified. There are many, many, many religious people who talk about the cross. They talk about Jesus and they talk about the experience that he endured. They talk about the, the lashings, the scourging of his back. They talk about the crown of thorns and they talk about the nails that were driven through his hands and his feet. And they talk about the spear that was thrown into his side. They talk about how his enemies mocked and ridiculed him every second of the time that he endured that cross. And they say, this was all done for you. But then they stop. And they don't clarify how we might appropriate how we might receive the blessings that Jesus has offered to all humankind. Jesus wants you to be saved, but there are conditions that he has set forth by which we accept his gift. And we are not preaching Christ and him crucified in its fullness until we clarify those conditions. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John eight twenty four. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Baptism. Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sin, falling, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts 22, verse 16. 
When Philip the evangelist preached to the Ethiopian nobleman, the Bible says in Acts 8.35, he preached to him Jesus. He preached Christ and him crucified, didn't he? And yet when the nobleman had heard the message, he said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? That implies, necessarily that implies that Philip had talked about baptism and preaching Christ and him crucified. We are not really preaching the full gospel of Jesus Christ until and unless we clarify the conditions that God has set forth in his word. What is it that people need more than anything else? What is it that is the crying need of the world in 2021? It's the same thing that has always been the need of the world. The world needs a savior. Our task, our responsibility as the church that meets here in Katy is to preach Christ and him crucified, to make sure that all that we say and all that we do leads people to a savior who died for them and reminds them of the benefits and the blessings that are only found in him and reminds them of the horrific nature of sin and its consequences. Let's be a Christ-centered, cross-oriented, gospel-preaching people. And maybe you need that gospel to be applied to your life. If so, heaven's invitation is yours this morning. Won't you make your way down the aisle as together we stand and as we sing.